some benefit that you get when something goes you know as widely publicized as this case did after making a murderer and there's you know thousands or hundreds of thousands of people crowdsourcing looking at all the possible issues from all different angles um, you know if if two minds are better than one a million minds are better than two and we didn't have the benefit of that or and we didn't have any witnesses that were willing to come forward and help us at all with usa today network wisconsin i'm shane nyman and i'm doug schneider this is making a mania the stephen avery saga and why we're obsessed one the verdict reads as follows we the jury find the defendant stephen a Avery guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. It's a podcast exploring why the case made famous by making a murderer grab the attention of the world and hopefully what we can learn from it. By now we've all seen the Netflix series, or at least the first season. We know the ins and we know the outs. Maybe you're a hardcore Reddit sleuth or maybe you buzz through all the episodes like any other series. Whatever the case, we all know the basic story and we're not here to rehash that. What we are here to do is pull back on all this, the series, the case, and the surrounding mania to see what we can learn about it. There's a lot of interest because there are a lot of layers. We want to peel them back and examine them like nobody else has done. Wisconsin attorneys Jerry Buting and Dean Strang were two of the breakout stars of the first season of Making a Murderer. That may seem like an odd way to put it, but let's be real. Making a Murderer is a TV show. It was a hit and they became famous. They even went on tour. In that first season, they were the good guys doing battle against a corrupt system and facing off on court with the villainous Ken Kratz. They were a pair of underdogs who came out on the losing end of the Stephen Avery trial, but making a murderer had come to help set things right. The consensus back in 2016 was Buting and Strang did a fine job in their defense of Avery. That's why it was surprising to see, in the latest round of episodes, that Kathleen Zellner calls them out for their work more than 10 years ago. Whether you think they properly defended Avery, or whether you think he was made a murderer, the fact is they lost. Avery's been in prison since the judge read the guilty verdict. Buting says in part two that he knows in his heart he and Strang tried as hard as they could on Avery's behalf. And as Zellner continues to work toward what would be among the most high-profile exonerations in history, Strang says she ought to be looking at that. The official term is ineffective assistance of counsel, just as they ought to be looking at every other option available to them. Our colleague Allison Durer covers crime and justice for USA Today Network Wisconsin. She spent about 45 minutes on the phone with Buting a few days after the release of Part 2. Among the reasons we wanted to hear from him was a key argument Zellner makes. Avery's first defense lawyers, Buting and Strang, weren't effective. You know, she's talking about very, very specific, particular things that, that she that she saw with a little bit of a different perspective than uh, than you do when you're preparing for a trial. I mean, you have a different burden of proof on post-conviction. You know, she has to prove um, that there's a reasonable uh, a reason to lack confidence in the verdict. So the, the burden is shifted on on post-conviction, and I do trials and post-convictions, and you, and you do you do have a little different perspective when you do that. And um, whereas you know, when it's Pre-trial, the state has the entire burden, and um, it's the defense responsibility to to show whether you know where there is reasonable doubt, if there is. And you know, I think we did that. <clears throat> I think there's an abundance of reasonable doubt. This particular jury didn't agree, and that's um, you know 
it was very unfortunate for for Stephen and and it disappointed us greatly. And like I said, is whenever that happens, you second guess yourself and you think, well, there's maybe there's, you know, if I'd done this different or I'd focused on that issue differently, maybe it would have made a difference. But you know, there's also some some benefit that you get when something goes, you know, as widely publicized as this case did after making a murderer and there's, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people crowdsourcing, looking at all the possible issues from all different angles. Um, you know, if, if two minds are better than one, a million minds are better than two. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have the benefit of that, or and, and we didn't have any witnesses that were willing to come forward and help us at all. You know, we were the bad guys in the pretrial preparation of this case uh, because the public knew nothing other than the false narrative that was put forth by Ken Kratz in his press conference. <clears throat> there was essentially a, a gag order on evidence um, up and after that, up until the time of the trial, and. And so, you know, they're just, I think most people thought, well, this guy's obviously guilty, and, you know, even if I know something that's suspicious or doesn't seem to fit, you know, it's probably not important, so they don't come forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, making a murderer kind of gave people a whole different perspective of what happened because they spent three or three and a half hours of actual trial footage where people could see um, the testimony and and how people said it, how people looked as they were testifying, and you know, I think it could make it, it made a, it makes a big difference then. As opposed to just reading about it in the paper, or seeing a snippet <clears throat> in a news story. Sure, because it's going to be very, you know, there's limitations in print, and even more so on television when it comes to presenting what happens on a, a day. I mean, we would <clears throat> we would go through a whole day of testimony, and then we had these. Um, half hour or so press conferences at the end of every day, which was very unusual. Mm-hmm. But then what ended up on television was, you know, two or three minutes that really didn't oftentimes capture what happened during the day's testimony. And and that's all that most people saw. Even during the trial, that's all that most people saw was just two or three minutes of coverage on television or, you know, an article in the newspaper that necessarily is limited on how much it can cover. As we see in part two, Zellner has certain advantages when working on Avery's case at this juncture versus what Beauty and Strang were first dealing with. For starters, she has the ability to look back at what was done in 2007 and fill in the gaps. That hindsight is a luxury, and she can now see what new avenues are worth exploring and what parts of the case can be ignored. You, you do have more time. I mean, on post-conviction, the disadvantage, of course, is that the client has already been convicted and the burden has shifted now. Um, but you, you generally do have more time in, in preparing a case for, co- for post-conviction to find experts, and you've got the benefit of transcripts where the state's um, fact witnesses or expert witnesses have been sort of locked in to what their testimony is, and then that can be reviewed by another expert. So, um, you know, oftentimes it's, that's one of the things you do is is sort of test the state's hypothesis and see if it makes sense, and then see if there are some other, sometimes there are newly developed scientific procedures that that take place between the date of the trial and 
the time you're doing a post-conviction that allows you to to do that kind of investigation. You know, particularly computer um, forensic analysis, for instance. I mean, there's been you know, just every year there's more developments in in the type of technology that's used in cell phones, um, computers, and there are people who are also working to develop software programs and other sorts of things that allow analysts after the fact to get more information from computers. And and so sometimes you, you do, on post-conviction, ha- um, have to look at that and see if there have been new developments that would allow you or that would make sense for you to try and pursue um, an expert maybe even when there wasn't one at the trial in the first place. So not only do you have a different time element with an appeal, obviously you want to work fast because your client has already been sitting in prison for years, but you don't have a hard deadline staring you in the face. You also have the advantage of scientific methods that are always improving. There are different methods available for evidence testing that just weren't around or as popular 10 years ago just as there will be new methods to consider 10 years from now. Another thing Zellner has going for her is, well, she's Kathleen Zellner, and her client is Stephen Avery. Millions of people around the world know this story, and many are rooting for them and would be willing to help in whatever way they can. It's safe to say that because of making a murderer, Avery has a lot more resources. That wouldn't be the case for somebody else in a similar situation. Well, no, that's the problem. Um... You know, if it's a public defender case that's handled um, in the staff by the staff of a, in Wisconsin, they have um, a line of expert witness money that's available, but it's not all. First of all, it's not very generous, and secondly, it's sometimes difficult to persuade them, the the people who make those decisions, about whether or not to to grant the resources in this particular case when they have to have a bigger perspective of a whole agency's number of cases. And then that's probably even more so if you're on the assigned counsel um, level where you're only making $40 an hour, the lowest hourly rate in the country. And, um, you know, you try and get expert approval from the public defender's office or assigned counsel office. It's it just isn't that much available. Now, if you're in private practice and you have a, you know, a paying client that can afford that kind of resources, then, then yeah. Right. Um, you know, I think that Kathleen Zellner's status is uh, you know, unusual because she's, she's been very successful at wrongful conviction, um, exonerations, and then lawsuits that result from that. And, and, um, has been able to use some of that success to help individual clients down the road, and that's great. I'm, and I applaud her for being able to do that. So, you know, she didn't. However, she's spending her money. She's certainly spending, plowing a lot of it back into uh, representation and defense of, of future clients, and that's good. Despite having a few fingers pointed in his direction, Buting sounded impressed with Zellner's efforts so far. More than once, he said it was clear she was being very thorough, at least from what he saw in the latest round of episodes. He has confidence in the future for Avery, even if things have been pretty bleak despite all the publicity. I mean, I think he is going to get a hearing at some point. He should have gotten a hearing. I mean, frankly, you know, the Sheboygan Judge Sitkevich's treatment of 
a case of this magnitude and the length of motions that were provided, 200-page motion that's denied and a six-page decision that doesn't even cover 90% of the issues was preposterous. Um, I mean, she really makes herself look ill-prepared and biased when you do something like that. Judge Willis, for instance, just by comparison, who many viewers of Making a Murderer have criticized um, repeatedly, um, in the post-conviction hearing um, that um, was held in, in Stephen Avery's direct appeal um, by the two appellate public defenders, um, he did, I think it was like a 100-page decision addressing the issues that, that they raised. And their motion was nowhere near 200 pages long. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's preposterous that she denied um, Zellner's motion without a hearing and without even hearing a response from the state about whether they were going to object to having a hearing. So ultimately, a lot of these these issues and whether we should or shouldn't have uh, done some things are, are going to have to be resolved through testimony in court and, and rulings by uh, a judge, probably a different one, frankly. But, you know, she's thorough. Uh, that is Zellner, is, is thorough in, in the way she's investigated this case, and I applaud her for that. You know, we we continue to support Stephen Avery and have hoped that he would get another uh, fair, you know, fair chance at a, at a trial. So, you know, if we made mistakes, then we're certainly, you know, going to acknowledge whatever we did and... Um, you know the the resources, of course, that you have pretrial. I mean, it's it's not realistic to expect that that anybody, in any case, or at least most people, in in most cases, can devote the kind of time and expertise with you know 14 different experts looking at the case, and I forget however much two or three hundred thousand that's been spent just on experts. But a lot of this, I think, is that she's developed is really fits you know more closely a definition of newly discovered evidence some of it is with the newer techniques that were have been developed since trial and and ultimately I think a, a court's gonna have to rule from that perspective as well something we didn't hear a lot about in the first season is if Avery and Dassey didn't do it then who did to some extent that's probably because at the time of the trial, Buting and Strang were tasked with proving Avery didn't do it and not finding out who did. But that doesn't mean they didn't come up with some ideas. Well, we filed a motion, a Denny motion, listing a number of third-party suspects. We weren't able to use any of them. So I don't think it's fair for me to, to um, nail it down to particular people. But there, there were, you know, some of... Some of what's developed as, like people on Reddit, for instance, have dug through all of the, the papers and um, documents in the case and some of the theories that people have raised about who could have been an alternative suspect are, are pretty close to what we had in mind as well. And some of those you see in Making a Murderer too. some of those you don't. It's not surprising you didn't want to name names. Anyone who spent any time cruising around the social feeds or Reddit threads about making a murderer is probably familiar with some other players that have been suggested. Allison asked specifically about the three alternative suspects Zellner zeroes in on. Ryan Hillegas, 
Halbach's ex-boyfriend, Bobby Dassey, Brendan's brother, and Scott Tonic, Brendan's stepdad. Buting said those could be some of the people they looked closely at. You know, and, and some also, keep in mind, you know, there's a lot of suspicious behavior by people um, from different aspects of the case. That's, and some of which you can see in Naked and Murder 1, you see a lot of sort of nervous, evasive behavior and expressions and testimony from, from witnesses. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that's because they were the killer. It may mean something else, that they were um, helping the, the law enforcement in some way and didn't want to have to admit it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, so I, I urge people to keep that in mind, too, when they, when they, see, when they see the way certain witnesses behave and, and become suspicious of them. It may or may not have anything to do with their... their um, guilt as an actual perpetrator of the crime, um, but it could be an, an uncomfortable nervousness because they know that they're not telling the truth about certain aspects of the investigation they're aware of. Okay, and are, who, I guess, are there people that you're thinking of specifically here? Yeah, there are people that have been criticized or have been accused after making a murder. One, I'm not going to say who they are, but... Um, you know, a lot of people have have raised real serious concerns about them. And, you know, even when it comes to Hillegas and making a murder or two, I mean, one of the things you see about the documentary is it's sort of, I think it's chronological, you know, as she's developing her theories of possible suspects. And, and Zellner says that she, she whittles it down, and sometimes there may be four or five people that, that could potentially be a suspect, but as she investigates further, she decides that they're not. Mm-hmm. And you see that progression, I think, even with regard to Hillegas at, at various times during the documentary. So I don't know that she's, it's clear really what category she would put him in by the time you get to the end. As far as what the future holds, Buting, like the rest of us, is playing a game of wait and see. He doesn't know what's going to happen with Zellner's efforts or with making a murderer. He has his own career to focus on, and he's also started a new nonprofit with Strang and Keith Finley, co-founder of the Wisconsin Innocence Project. It's called the Center for Integrity in Forensic Science, and its aim is to, quote, improve the reliability and safety of criminal prosecutions through strengthening the forensic sciences. It's something that might not have a positive impact on Avery's process, but could help people down the road in similar situations. Well, you know, when it comes to making a murderer, too, I mean, we'll have to see um, what kind of a response, you know, whether it's as viewed as widely as, as the first one, it, it seems to be um, going viral on its own right already. Um, whether it'll, it'll be quite as big, I don't know. But, um, you know, I think she's, she's raised a lot of very interesting questions. And, um, you know, I'm not afraid to, to see where they go, but wherever they go, if it, if it means mistakes that Dean and I made or not, or, or some other grounds. You know, the bottom line is we still support Stephen and Brendan and hope that they get justice. And, um, you know, I think they, Brendan's case is a little more of a challenge now because his direct appeal ended. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, but, it, you know, and ironically, his is the one that probably struck people as 
biggest miscarriage of justice right. all over the world. So, um, you know, there have been some changes that have resulted from it. They haven't helped him. But there's been some states that have changed the laws. Wisconsin can certainly do the same that would bar um, police interrogation of 16-year-olds without an attorney's present. Um, and I'd like to see some broader reforms get started that, that go beyond just the question of Stephen Avery and Brendan Daffy. Um, that's why Dean and I have, have worked with Keith Finley at the UW Law School to try and develop this this independent nonprofit to kind of look at one, at least one of the systemic causes of wrongful conviction, uh, that is forensic science. So I'm excited about that. I mean, that's it's a side project. I'm still a practicing lawyer, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to help make that a success. I'm struck by the idea that Buting and Strang and and Keith Finley, who's a a powerhouse in in the world of uh, innocence projects have decided to focus on forensic sciences as opposed to other elements in, involved in in criminal prosecutions, criminal law. Yeah, it's not it's not what I would have expected them to fire up a nonprofit about. You know, the forensic aspect of it. That says to me that they have some real strong concerns about whether forensic science plays a role in, in criminal prosecution. Well, going into this, I think we were both curious to hear what Buting would have to say, even though in part two we did get their reaction to Zellner singling them out and and sort of saying that they were ineffective. And to no one's surprise, they're saying all the right things, meaning, you know, they're not really taking offense to it. They're saying that Zellner is just doing her job and anyone doing a good job would look at the defense that, that Stephen Avery had. And, you know, because they're looking they're looking at everything, any any possible um, problem with, with what went down in 2007 um, or earlier, I guess, is, is on the table. They're taking the high road. Um, they also know that, that it's pro forma to list inadequate, uh, inadequate counsel is uh, one of the reasons for appeal. And you, they even acknowledge in the first season that there were some limitations to what they could do. Um, they were limited in experts they could hire. Uh, those those guys don't testify for free, and they had a limited budget. Uh, the whole prosecution, or the whole defense, rather, was uh, was done for about four hundred thousand dollars, and they probably ended up taking a loss on that from a purely financial standpoint. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, as, as we say earlier, they have a limited time compared to what Zellner has to prepare a case. It's uh, the original case was scheduled for trial. Uh, Avery, like any other defendant, has a right to be tried fairly quickly. Um, it's not immediate, but it's also not indefinite. So Eventually, you have to put your case out there and, and go with what you have, and that may not have enabled you to analyze DNA or go more into the idea that some of the the circumstantial forensic evidence against Avery might have been planted as the first series 
argues and a number of people who are out there in social media have argued that uh, it, it was part of a frame-up of, of Stephen Avery. So they basically did the best with what they could. I think that most people who uh, watch the first uh, series and, and know a little bit about criminal defense um, understand that they they mounted a fairly good ac- effort, but as in many cases uh, of of this magnitude, that defense certainly was not perfect, and there are opportunities for for Zellner to say, "Hey, you know, in in this case." If they had put forth one expert to counter the prosecution's argument, uh, it might have taken the taken the jurors in an, in a different direction. I was just reading an interview Kathleen Zellner gave to the Daily Beast, and in it she mentions that um, pretty early on, when she was starting to dig around, she saw that the the blood vial from 1996 that sort of had a big aha moment in the first season. Uh, they learned that it had been opened up by somebody with the Innocence Project in 2002, and it hadn't been tampered with by law enforcement, like was, which was sort of the story presented in season one. And that strikes me as an example of how Zellner now has the advantage. She's going back over the case that was already tried and has the ability to look at what Buting and Strang did and, and was effective or what you know roads they went down which didn't quite work out so well, and, and she can you know, maybe fix those or, or find new approaches. Um, and at the same time, she can do the same thing with the, the state's case, and she can see the, the, the narrative that, that Ken Kratz laid out as um, sort of unclear, I think, as, as it always was. Um, but she can look at that and then, and then punch holes in it. Um, and that's, I guess, what, what her plan is to, to concoct her own, her own theory of what happened um, relating to with Hillegas um, possibly having that key, getting it to law enforcement, and then Bobby Dassey and Scott Toddick filling in the void left by Dassey and Avery, I guess. Yeah, there's a there's a term you hear a lot in criminal investigations, fresh eyes. Periodically with a cold case, police will switch detectives or lead detectives on the case with the idea that the person who's been working it for several years might be too close to it and somebody coming in with a fresh perspective fresh point of view can see things that that maybe the the first person couldn't or wouldn't just because they're bringing a a new perspective green bay's done that with their uh investigation of of amber wilde the uh uwgb student who went missing and is presumed uh to have been murdered roughly 20 years ago Uh, new new guys on the case younger guys on the case are are taking fresh approaches to that that's the same kind of advantage that that zellner has Um, she also has technology uh, and approaches that weren't necessarily available to her Um, we were talking off air a little bit about uh, brain fingerprinting, which uh, she claims in in part two exonerates Stephen Avery or or shows that he's innocent. That's something that I don't think anybody heard of uh, back during the the original trial. Now it's we don't know if there's uh, proof that it is it scientifically works or it's admissible in court. 
but it's just another approach that that she's taken that was not available right and i think if stephen avery is someday going to walk out of prison a free man it's going to be because of the fresh eyes provided by kathleen zellner and also thanks to the spotlight of making a murderer Learn more about this podcast, Making a Murderer, and the cases of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey at postcrescent.com. Our journalists have been reporting on these topics for years. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Making a Mania is written and produced by Shane Nyman and Doug Schneider. William Glasheen and Jim Rosendick recorded and edited the podcast. Special thanks to Allison Durr, who interviewed Jerry Buting for this episode. Other audio comes from the USA Today Network Wisconsin Archive.